it is my pleasure to now be joined by Glenn Milburn. Glenn, how are you doing today? Steve, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, you know, it, it, 2020 has certainly dealt us a hand that none of us were really expecting. So for anyone to be able to find time to do anything seems like a big ask. So I, I certainly appreciate it. Well, it's, again, it's my pleasure. Anytime I can share uh, some stories about my life to help others, I'm, I'm more than happy to do it. And that is exactly what I would like to do. And before we jump into some of the the stories that take us back a couple of years, you know, most recently, from what I can see, uh, you've been working at Blackman and Associates, uh, working in the investor relations PR space for for almost five years. So uh, as of late in your life, since being a professional athlete, you know, how have you approached what you wanted to do with your career? And how, you know, have you, I'm sure you have your hand in multiple different things or, you know, maybe it's all evolved as time's gone on. It has. Uh, my, my professional uh, career has been a circuitous one only because uh, having played football for so many years, college and then professional for, for nearly a decade, um, that's, that's all I knew. And that's what was naturally for most athletes. I think about 50% of of professional athletes get involved with some real sports related field, either coaching, broadcasting, um, scouting, those types of endeavors. And so for me, when I immediately retired from the NFL in 2002, I got involved with the, with the football league called the arena football league. I joined an ownership group in Austin, Texas. We started a franchise and I became the general manager and uh, executive vice president over football operations. And because I played so many years and I've been a part of so many different football teams in my playing career, I understood the structure and how I felt a team should be structured, how coaching staff should be structured, how training staff should be structured, and the logistics with travel and sponsorships and all those things on the business and football operations side came natural to me. And what it did was it helped me gain a a healthy foundation for business uh, that really helped me to what I do now. For the last five years, I've worked in public affairs primarily, which is a fancy word of saying I'm a lobbyist. I, I basically work with private clients across the, primarily the Western United States. I work with tech companies, uh, energy and finance companies. I work with firefighter unions from Seattle all the way down to Southern California. Um, and we help them engage with elected officials or government and getting contracts, helping them with their labor negotiations, helping them with their communications. Uh, because again, if you're a firefighter, you're not necessarily uh, in the know in terms of what goes on in city halls and in governments. And, and you need people like us to be able to articulate your message and help craft it to to a message that they can hear and understand and, and, and get to the objective. So um, it's been great work. It's I was a public policy major in college. So that's how I got involved with really learning about the policy process and how governments work and how to be effective. And it's been a great experience for me because I get to interact with a lot of different groups and I enjoy the clients that I that we work with because and, and so by doing what I enjoy doing and what I've been uh, taught to do, it's allowed me to do good. 
firefighters help save lives and it helps me to know that I'm working on behalf of a client that is doing good work to save lives and protect property and, and the things that we all care about. Oh yeah, who, who wouldn't wanna help the firefighters of the world? Um, but it, you know, th- to think about, you know, I'm sure as a professional athlete, it's got to be tough to get used to a place for a couple of years, then go to a different place, then a different place. So it's, it's all new teammates, it's a new location, it's a new way that everything's run. But in that post-professional athlete part of your life, you've now seen what you liked about how different ways things can be run. You've seen good things and bad things, what works, what doesn't work. And then taking that to then run your own franchise and run being, you know, maybe not necessarily having full control of everything, but the GM, the executive vice president, you know, I would imagine by the time you left football altogether, you pretty much had a PhD with how to work with people because that seemingly can sum everything up that you did is how to, to basically run a business and work with other people. Absolutely. And great point, Steve. I, I think that professional sports and, and, and really sports in general, you, you're able to um, learn malleability, adaptability. You're able to adjust to different situations. As an example, as a, as a football player, I, I grew up in Los Angeles, but, you know, I played for the Chicago Bears. I can't control the weather. All I, ha- all I can do is control how I adjust to the conditions that everyone has to play in. And part of its attitude, part of its preparation. And, and once you learn those skills, you're able to, to really go into any situation and have success because you, you've learned to prepare yourself for other contingencies. Sports is a great tool for preparing people to be able to adjust to whatever situation they're, they're faced. Disappointment, I've been traded four times in my career, and those experiences, um, they're fearful at first. The first time I was traded, I was, I was completely afraid, and where am I going? I'm going to the other side of the country, but you learn over time and experience that the things that you don't know aren't negatives. They're just things that you haven't experienced before that if you approach it the right way and prepare, those can be even better experiences. And I've learned over time to appreciate every experience as unique, but also learn from from them to help myself for the next challenge that faces me down the road. And I think that my football career, having played for so many teams and organizations, I appreciate each one for what they were. I played for some great organizations and I played for some not so great organizations. But when you go to a a team or an organization that isn't as well run, you appreciate the one that you came from and don't take it for granted. Um, And at the same time, when you don't, when you play for an organization that is not as well run as before, you learn to rally around your teammates and, and say, we can make the most of this situation in spite of what we don't have. We can make most of what we do have. So, you know, there are a lot of lessons that sports teach us for, for how to be successful as an athlete, but also how we can carry it on to the things that we do outside of sports. Absolutely. And out of everything that you just said, what I felt like I heard was it's all about your mindset. 
you know, if you get traded, it can be this negative downward spiral of, well, I, I have this fear of what's happening. This team obviously didn't really like me if they're getting rid of me. Like all these crazy things can start going on in your head, whether they're true or not. But instead it's, hey, this team really wanted me. I don't have control over this. It's happening to me. I can at least control my reaction to it. And then by framing things in the right way, this thing doesn't necessarily need to have a positive or negative connotation to it. You can attach the positive. Exactly. You know, I was very, uh, I'm, I'm, I still am, but, but when I was a player, I had this ritual of always talking to my mom. I would call her the day before every football game. When I was in college, when I was in the pros, we had this routine that we, we go through. And every, whenever, you know, most of the time I was playing, I was, I was single. I was just, it was just me. Uh, I've been married for 20 years, but, be, but in my playing days, my mom was that confidant. And so I remember, you know, during a time when I, you know, when you're during the trading process, you really don't know until it's already happened. The transaction's already taking place. And I remember uh, not the first time I was traded, but the second time I was traded when I played for the Detroit Lions and was traded to the Green Bay Packers. I remember getting a call early in the morning from the head coach, who was Bobby Ross. He brought me in the office and said, you know, and coaches have a difficult task because they're, they're trying to make the most of a situation to make their team better. As players, you understand that they're trying to do what they felt is best for the team, but it's not always in your best interest. And so he told me, you know, he had a prepared speech. I think something like, well, this is the hardest thing I have to do. I really don't like giving this information, but we're trading you. And there's a pause and I, and I was a bit surprised, but you, you take the information for what it is. And then he said, well, you're going to Green Bay. And I, I, I didn't crack a smile because the Green Bay was actually a better team than the Lions at the time. And so I was excited um, in some ways that I was going to a better team. And, and yet you're still disappointed because you, part of you is saying, well, what, what was the, the conditions that I'm no longer part of this organization that you're, you're you know, part of the, the situation is you feel like, well, I'm not a part of the winning equation that you feel is, is gonna help you. But at the same time, someone's trading for you, so they must see value in you to, to bring you to their team. So it's all in perspective and all in how you view a situation. But today, you know, the professional work that I do, I just came off of a, a November election cycle where we were involved in six different elections, and we didn't win all of them. We won 80% of them. So... You know, I was telling someone the other day, I said, you know, the, the ones that we didn't win, the elections that we didn't win are the ones that stick in your mind. It's more so than the ones you did win. And that's kind of like playing sports. You remember the ones that you lost more than you, you the ones you, the games you win because you go in expecting to win. But you, when you lose, you, you're more introspective, you're more careful, you're more um, aware of what are the things that went into this equation of things during a game or during an election campaign that you could have done differently to maybe change the outcome. Um, so all of those things in collective have been learning experiences. And 
you know, my mom would tell me, and again, back to, to the, the conversations with my mom were when I got traded, I, I gave her a call and said, well, I'm going to be going to a different team. And she said, remember, remember this, Glenn, you can control the things that only you can control, but have faith and know that wherever you're headed is going to be where you're supposed to be. And, you know, I took that as, as, a, as great advice from someone who never played a down of football in her life, but yet understood more than any coach I've ever played for is control the things you can control, but go into a situation with the best attitude. And, and, and if you do that enough times, you'll, you'll have a good outcome because you will have had the right attitude and mindset as you described going into the situation. Mm. It, and, you know, to, to take what you said uh, about winning and losing down to an even more micro level, I'm sure you can remember the drop passes more than the, all the catches that you had. You know, if you know, if you were on defense, right, that one missed tackle, you remember, you don't remember the 15 that you just made. I think we right. just always have a bias toward the negative and what we did wrong versus sometimes just soaking in what we did right. But one thing I really enjoyed in preparation for, for this conversation was watching this five-minute video I saw on Vimeo, Glenn's story, and it provided really great insight into how you prepped yourself to go on this journey through the NFL with your mindset of eliminating distractions, being very dedicated to your craft and what you were doing. I'm sure that, you, and I, of course, mom helped you in those phone calls along the way, but it seemed like you very much set yourself up for success. Can you just talk a little bit about how you were able to sustain that course through the gauntlet of playing as a professional athlete, but then even life afterwards. Absolutely. Um, for me, I, I learned as a rookie, uh, a player named Gil Bird. I, I went to a, to a chapel service my rookie year um, before a game. And one of the, the speakers was, a, was a, a former player who's NFL man of the year. His name was Gil Bird. He said, Remember this, if, I, if, you, if you remember nothing from what I've said, remember this. He said, don't trade in what you want the most for what you want for the moment. And that always stuck with me because for me, I was a player who was confident. I was undersized. I didn't have all the physical attributes of a first round draft pick. I was, I'm five foot nine on a good day. I'm 165 pounds on a good day. Um, I don't have the, I, I don't look like the prototypical football player, but I understood at an early age, and maybe this was attributed to my parents kind of instilling this is use what you have to the best of its ability and use the talent that God gave you. And so for me, it was a, it was a, mind, it was a mindset of, I'm going to prepare myself. I'm going to use my, my talents and strengths. And for me, it was speed and quickness do that to the best of your ability. And also you're, you're, you're intelligent, you're smart. You're someone that can study and learn something. And by virtue, I learned that at Stanford, I learned that, you know, I was fortunate to have coaches like Dennis Green and Bill Walsh, who were really the architects back then the West coast offense was the preeminent offensive system in the entire national football league. So if I could master the West Coast offense, I could play for 
40% of the teams in the NFL at that point. So that was in my control. I could control that by making sure I understood and didn't make mistakes in practice. And I knew I could be plugged in at different positions. I could be effective. And part of being a professional athlete is, you know, they say the best abil ability is availability and being able to, to know what to do and not, and to be counted on to make, to do the, make the right decision were things that I learned early on. Part of that, part of that equation is those things I can control. The other things that I can control is how I conduct myself off the field. Eliminating the distractions was a big part of how I felt my success was, was laid. Um, so many players and, and as a rookie, you're kind of, for me, I didn't say a lot. I just kind of observed a lot. And, and lo and behold, year after year, players with great talent didn't have long careers because of personal choices they made in many ways off the field, things that they did, you know, with law enforcement or, you know, relationships or, or not being focused on their, on their sport and their training and their preparation, making mental mistakes in games and practices. And the, all of those things contribute to a perception. All of those things contribute to how a team sees and views a player. And then for me, I wanted to be perceived as someone who was prepared and ready and able to do anything the team asked me to do. I wasn't a kick returner primarily my first couple of years in the National Football League, but my third year, the team drafted Terrell Davis, a Hall of Fame running back. I wanted to play running back too, but the coach, Coach Mike Shanahan at the time, called me in the office and said, Glenn, we really think you could be an effective kick returner for us, in addition to being kind of a change of pace, third down back. And I swallowed my pride and said, okay, coach, I appreciate what you said. I'm going to be the best kick returner you have. And I ended up making the Pro Bowl that year. And I think part of it was because of the way that I approached that difficult situation. Yeah, I'm disappointed, but I'm going to use what he's, the coach has said and make sure that I'm prepared and ready to, for whatever. And I studied film and I was able to, to understand what the objective was for, for the kickoff returner. And I ended up having a great year. And, and that was really marked the next six or seven years of my career um, as a kick returner. Um, and that was really attributed to a difficult situation of something that I didn't necessarily want to hear, but, but accepting it, not trading in what I wanted the most for what I wanted for the moment, which is I wanted to be the starting running back. But I said, look, okay, I'm not going to be the starter, but I'm going to be the best darn kick returner and third down back you have. And as a result, I had a great, great year and that propelled me to the success in, in my future years. Yeah, really well said. I mean, there, there's so much there that anyone could learn a little bit uh, how to go about their life. But, you know, one thing that I think is inherent in a lot of what we've discussed so far is that you were traded. You were told, hey, we're going to go this route. A lot of it was someone pushed you one way and you had to react to it. I want to take it even a couple years before your rookie year. You're at Oklahoma. And this, from what I could tell, was something that you really struggled with, this, this decision to go Oklahoma or Stanford. 
ultimately you decided to transfer to Stanford where you were very much torn between, you know, what do I do here uh, from a very early age? I mean, a very tough, probably the toughest decision that you have to make by the time you're 18 years old, uh, a decision like where will I play? Can you walk me through what, not, not necessarily why one school or the other, but having to evaluate two very tough choices, you make a decision and then ultimately you found that it wasn't really the right one for you. You wanted, you were able to then transfer. So just sort of working through how you come to these, this conclusion, but also not only did you make that you become then an all American. So it's not like it's this decision that doesn't have ramifications. You you're clearly very dedicated to your craft. It clearly does work out, but how did you go through the process of being like, okay, how do I do what's best for me in my future? Great question, and and really, I, I share this story a lot with 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 young people because, for one, I think it's very difficult for high school athletes to make college decisions when they're 15, 16, 17 years old. Just life has not been lived enough, and and for me, I was I was a young high school athlete. My senior year, I was 16 years old, and so. I really didn't have a lot of life experience to know what school was the best school for me. And at the time, uh, I grew up in Southern California. I went to Santa Monica High School and I was not highly recruited until my senior year. I was a defensive back and, and part-time bench warmer as a sophomore. And, and then I played as a defensive back my junior year. And I asked the coach, I said, I really am, feel like I'm a better running back and he, and he looked at my size and said, well, you need to be tough. And I ended up earning the, the starting spot and ended up setting all kinds of records in California for that one season. So then I'm being recruited by everyone. But before I started being recruited as an athlete, being a good student, I wanted to go to a good academic school because I saw all of my friends who I hung out with at school who weren't athletes, they wanted to go to Stanford University because that was one of the top ranked schools at the time and, and still is to this day. But at the time, it was where most of my friends could aspire to go to. So when I started getting letters from colleges and being recruited, I always had the back in the back of my mind, if football never worked out, where would I want to be? And that's where the conflict started to happen in, in my household, as opposed to, well, you're getting, you're, you're getting an athletic scholarship when you want to go to a school that has a great program like in Oklahoma, or would you rather go to a school that has a great academic reputation, but may not have as good of a program. And at the time, Stanford was coming off of a, of a tough year and Oklahoma was in the top five in the country. So when I ended up going to Oklahoma as a freshman, I've, I ended up telling Barry Switzer, who was the coach, I said, I want to play. Um, but I was still having second thoughts about the decision because I, it, it wasn't resolved in my mind that I made the right decision. Um, and when I got to Oklahoma, nothing against the University of Oklahoma. It's a great school. They've had success. Uh, I don't blame anyone there, but personally, I just felt like this was, I was giving up something um, in, in terms of 
having the opportunity if football never worked out. Um, and so I decided to transfer really without informing anyone in the Oklahoma athletic department until I had already kind of had the wheels turning. And I didn't even tell my parents that I wanted to make this decision because I was underage. And then I finally convinced my parents that I'm serious about making this decision because even if football didn't work out, because I think Stanford had a one in 10 record the year prior to me going to, to Stanford and transferring, it was a decision that I was making. Uh, again, I think many schools use this. It wasn't a four year decision. It was a 40 year decision. I was making a decision that I felt would be the best for me if football never worked out. And, you know, it was a, it, the process I wouldn't change because it helped me mature. It helped me understand I need to have my own voice. I can't have my parents speak for me forever. I take their advice, but I have to also use my, my mind and wisdom and decision-making process and grow up and, and inform people what I wanted to, to do. And it was a step for me to mature and grow up. And I think the decision of going to Oklahoma and transferring was the best one for me because it helped me to see two different programs. It gave me confidence to know that I could play at a big time program, but also I could go to a program that was on the rise and also be a part of a winning organization. And thankfully it all worked out to where by the time I was at left Stanford, we were a pretty darn good team. And I would, and still was able to achieve the, the athletic goals that I wanted in spite of that. And part of that was just the attitude. You know, if I would have gone straight from high school to Stanford, it may not have been the same experience. Um, and so I learned to appreciate both and I, and I don't downplay Oklahoma for leaving, for me leaving it. I appreciate the experiences I had and the players that I got to play with and the coaches that coached me, but I also appreciate the opportunity to go to a school and and be a part of something that was that we built that we could look back and say we were a part of some something great to turn around a program was is a great feeling oh absolutely did to, to watch the tide turn because you helped turned it i, I mean it i i even if it's in business you know taking something that's going downward and then completely reversing the trend i mean anytime you you get that it's got to be one of the most fulfilling feelings that you can have um, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, Blackman and Associates um, started seven years ago and, and it started from nothing. It started from an idea. I worked, Jimmy Blackman and I were college classmates at Stanford and he and we were both working in City Hall. Um, I worked for the mayor. He had been the chief of staff for the previous mayor who was leaving. And so what ended up happening was he said, I'm going to start a firm. Um, I want you to consider going with me. I said, I need more time. I need more experience in, in government before I'm comfortable going. And literally 18 months later, he comes knocking and says, I need you now. And that's when I made the, the jump. Um, but my point to that is we built something that really was started with one client that's grown to, you know, over, a, you know, 14, 15 clients that were thriving. We're, we're, we're well known in our space, but it's 
the thrill of being able to build something that has been in existence for seven years out of nothing. That's a real, um, it's an exhilaration that you can't necessarily have when you, when you go to something that's already successful and something that's big and, and you really had no part in the growth. You're just managing it versus being part of something that you've had a hand in seeing the development and adding new clients, having wins, having success, seeing, seeing the appreciation that comes from hard work and collective efforts. So preaching to the choir, I could not agree more with, um, loving that career path versus joining up with the big guy already on the block in not that there's anything wrong with it, but I personally sure, enjoyed the, the, the uphill battle of trying to create something from nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do, I, I hate to ask guys about playing with specific players, but you did play alongside Barry Sanders, who not only is an all-time great running back, but you guys are of the same frame. So Obviously, you'd already made a Pro Bowl by the time you end up in Detroit. But did you take anything from his game, his style, what he did? And by, like, by the way, no one can ever really run like Barry Sanders. So I'm not suggesting that um, it changed anything. But was there anything in particular about his craft that you were able to take and carry with you as you became a more skillful return man? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, he was, he was a, just an excellent player, an excellent teammate. And I, in, 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 in this respect, most people will see the highlight films of him on the field, on the turf in Detroit, in the Silver Dome, making defenses look ridiculous, grabbing for air. But he was someone that I, I was next to in the locker room and how he, he wasn't egotistical. He, he could have easily been a prima donna. He was none of that. He was someone that was humble. He, he didn't say a lot. He was very introverted. And there's, there, there's a story that I have about Barry Sanders that, I, that not many people know because he was someone that really didn't share a lot. But one time, and, and this is the kind of person that I was, I was someone that over-prepared. I was someone that was looking for an edge because I was an undersized player, someone that, you know, when you look at walking down the street, you don't immediately recognize as a football player, but I'm someone that's going to work out the day after the season, I'm back in the weight room. I'm, you know, I'm running up hills and doing those things. And I always was curious about how does Barry Sanders do it? I never see him in the weight room. I never see him. He's kind of going through the motions at practice. But then once the game hits, it's like he's in a different, he's on a different speed than everyone else. And there was one time in the off season, I was, I was at a local high school in, uh, in nearby the the training facility and I was doing doing a, a workout and I had just finished and I was walking back to my car and I saw this 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 guy from a distance walk across the street hop the fence and then do do some by himself and it was Barry Sanders he was a guy that that did the hard work but he did it when no one was watching and that that always stuck with me someone that well he's putting in work he's just not he's not showing off to everyone about how he gets it done and that that always stuck with me is do the hard work when no one's watching and that hard work that you put in will be revealed when everyone's watching and that was someone that you know I learned from him and 
thankfully, because I learned that work ethic that he had when no one was watching, he was working as hard, if not harder. Once the games went on, he had the success. And, you know, I really didn't play a lot of running back. So that that's, you know, thankfully, you know, he was, you know, Hall of Famer, 2000 yard season. When I was one of the years I was there, he was just excellent. We, they didn't need me to play running back in Detroit. They had already had more than enough in Barry Sanders. But I learned that when I went to other teams in the future that, you know, if I can do a third of what Barry Sanders did on the field, um, we can be a better team. And he, he was a guy that, you know, I learned a lot from what he did off the field to prepare for his on-field success. Got it. Uh, well, you, we've alluded to this throughout. You, you whether it's um, seeing how Oklahoma and Stanford constructed their programs, what made them successful, the different NFL teams. We just hit on Barry Sanders. But when you think now of the coaches, the GMs, the even the presidents of the school, I mean, whoever is higher up in the hierarchy. When you think back, you know, with all the success you've been able to have after your playing days, of course, the success you had for a decade in the NFL, does anyone in particular stand out to you as someone that really impressed you the most with how they were approaching management and creating success amongst a group of individuals? For sure. Um, there are two that stand out. Um, one it was my coach at Stanford, head coach, Dennis Green. Uh, he was someone, because of where he came from, he, he coached under Bill Walsh at Stanford in the late 70s. He then became the first African-American coach to coach at Northwestern in the Big Ten. And then he went to the 49ers when Bill Walsh was, was there and um, was an assistant. But he came to Stanford. Stanford was not was was at the bottom of the Pac-10 conference. The attitude at Stanford at the time, and I and and I lived it that first year as I sat out and redshirted, was one of apathy and one that you know I'm here to get an education. And he literally changed the attitude and the mindset of the Stanford football program to one that was, we have to believe that we can be the best in the Pac-10. And we're going to do it by being the toughest team. And that was, that was a mind shift that the team, the players, we all had to make our individual decisions. Do we want to go on this ride? And are we willing to do what it takes to, to, to get to the top of that hill? And I remember the progression because not everybody went on that journey. There were some that decided to, I'm, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to go and get my degree. And, you know, he allowed people to, to, to leave the program, but stay at the school. And I thought that was really a testament to, he wanted people that were all in committed. And I learned that um, some valuable lessons and from him, because he was someone that I give credit to the success that Stanford has today. You know, a player who was recruited and played under Dennis Green was David Shaw who is the head coach at Stanford today. He learned that same mindset from Dennis Green when we were all players. The second person was my position coach under Dennis Green. His name was Tyrone Willingham, who later wow. was the head coach at Stanford and at Notre Dame and at University of Washington. And 
what he taught me was, again, the importance of the details. He was someone that was a position coach, but largely someone that was responsible for a position in the West Coast offense, the running back can be interchanged in, in maybe three to four offensive positions, tight end, fullback, slot receiver, or halfback. And so me, I had to learn four to five positions. I could, they could put me all the way out wide in certain formations and make me go in motion and shift and do these things to basically match up against a linebacker where I could have an advantage. And so he taught me the details of being a smart player, but the, the objective of the play and what they were trying to accomplish. Um, and so I took that from, from in college at Stanford through, through an, in his meeting rooms, him teaching me to, to, to this day. And, you know, fortunately I was able to have some success at Stanford and some success in the pros. And later, you know, in the, about seven, eight years ago, the, the Stanford, Stanford inducted me into the Stanford Hall of Fame. And I had him, my position coach, Tyrone Willingham there. And I, I wanted to remind him that I wouldn't be there in that position without him pushing me in the meeting rooms and pushing me on the practice field. And, and he was really the, the one that I attribute a lot of my success at Stanford to. That's awesome. I completely overlooked that Tyrone Willingham was on that staff. Um, well, we had a lot of great play. We had Brian Billick, who was the, the, the head coach for the Baltimore Ravens, won a Super Bowl with the Ravens. He was, he was on that staff. Willie Shaw, who's David Shaw's father, who's a longtime NFL assistant, was our defensive coordinator. Ron Turner was the offensive coordinator, who was a, has been a college head coach for, for many programs. So we, we had a very good um, coaching staff, of great assistance, and really, you know, we were a program that a lot of teams feared, kind of like Stanford plays, you know, in recent years, where they're, they're not the flashiest, but they're a team that's going to be disciplined and not make a lot of mistakes, and they're going to play physical football, and that's, that's, how, that's how we were. And generally feels like they're always ranked. I mean, I, I don't know. This year is a very different year, but in general, I feel like you never see Stanford's name without a, a little number next to it. Right. That's true. Well, they, they, they play, they play similar, similarly. I mean, again, throw this year out the window, but um, they've had a reputation of being a team that if you're going to lose, it's going to be a hard, hard out for them, but they're going to find a way to, to make the, the, the game close and they're going to have, make the right decisions at the end to win. Yeah. Oh, well, Glenn, in closing, yeah, you know, I'd like to ask you, as I ask just about every single one of my guests, given everything that you were able to do from great college athlete, great NFL player, you know, two-time pro bowler to be the, the GM and the EVP of an arena football. I mean, the list just goes on and on. I, I mean, you've had success at virtually every stop of your life for the, you know, the last like 40 years. What's the one best piece of advice if you could boil it down to anything that you would impart on a young person looking to create their own success? I would say this, I would say, have a plan, stick to your, stick to your plan and eliminate the distractions that can deviate you from that plan. Because I think 
having goals and having a, having a game plan is is great. But when things get tough, when things aren't popular, when things aren't convenient, it's easy to deviate from that plan. And that's when success is elusive. When people aren't watching, when people don't have um, someone in their in their ear all the time telling them to do something, when they have to take it upon themselves to be reminded of their goals and their objectives. And as a parent, I have two kids that I remind them of that literally every day. And, you know, it's something that I still have in my mind to do. I have to remind myself of why am I doing what I'm doing? What, what am I doing? What's, what is the, the best way in the, in the most direct path to get there? And how can I structure my day to allow myself the opportunity to have that success and get closer to that objective? If, if your viewers can understand that it's important to set goals, but it's more important to stay focused on the goals and to take steps every day to get closer to them, they'll have the success that they want. Glenn, I, I can't thank you enough. There's been so many nuggets of success in this discussion that it's hard to believe anyone could listen to it and not leave with a better idea of what it takes to actually get what whatever it is that they desire. So thank you so much for taking the time today. I, I really do appreciate it. Absolutely, Steve. Thank you for having me.